All right. Well, welcome to 2021, right? Awesome. We've made it to this new year. So hopefully you had a wonderful uh, New Year's holiday. You had fun with family and maybe also some friends, a small group of friends, obviously, not a large group. But hopefully this year, next New Year's Eve, we can have a big party, right? And all of the people, either friends or family, we can have over our houses or maybe even have church. We can have a massive party and celebration. Uh, that would be great, right? Amen. Um, we pray that uh, the end of this COVID uh, season, we'll call it a season, uh, will be over in the coming months. And um, so I'm going to, I wanted to make an announcement. Um, some of the mothers already know about this, uh, but in case you didn't, um, there is a nursing room right behind Jacob Candler's head, right behind the computer there. Uh, there is a nursing room for you mothers to go and take your babies if they are, if you feel like they need to be nursed or you, almost, or you just want to take them out of the room because you feel like they're being a little fussy and you want to get them into a, a more uh, secure environment, you're welcome to go into that room. You can actually lock that door. Um, and from what I've heard that uh, you can still hear us up front from that room. Uh, and uh, Pastor didn't put a nice layer of carpet in there. So uh, it's and there's some rockers back there, and there's a changing table back there. Uh, who knows what else will be there in the coming months, right? We may have a like a bar in there and all kinds of things. And so who knows, you know? Uh, we want to make sure we treat our mothers well, so nothing is uh, beyond the the luxury or needs of our mothers. So, uh, and if you mothers want to have more children because of that room, go for it, right? If you want to use that as, hey, let's have more kids because now there's a nursing room in the church, uh, so whatever. Um, I should have gotten an amen too. Um, here we go. So um, we are in Luke chapter 15. Typically, a lot of times when people preach this chapter, they'll preach all three stories, all three parables as one sermon. Sometimes they'll take verse the two stories, the shorter ones, uh, one through uh, 7 and 8 through 10 as one sermon. Instead, we're going to split them up into three different sermons. Uh, Pastor didn't preach last week on 1 through 7 on the sheep, and uh, I'm going to be preaching 8 through 10. And uh, sometimes it's good to be uh, to hear uh, teachings and, re and get re repetition of teaching, I guess is my, my point. If you didn't know this, uh, for you mothers and, and fathers who have had to watch Blue's Clues with your kids at any point, I don't know if that's just still a show, on Nickelodeon, it was when my uh, when I, my sister was younger, and uh, anyways, uh, they had a theory or a philosophy that they would show the same episode five days in a row, so that children would be able to pick up on the lesson. I don't know if you knew that, um, and so we're kind of doing a similar thing. We're going to kind of teach a similar lesson, a similar teaching, a similar. Uh, uh, story that Jesus does. He he uses two, three different stories to say the same thing, and we're going to do the same thing as Jesus did. So, looking at Luke 15, verses 8 through 10. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house, seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much again for this day. Lord, we thank you for this new year. 
It's common, Lord, uh, you know this, it's common for, for your children, for your people, Lord, to make resolutions, to look at their lives, either it be their spiritual lives or their, uh, their physical lives or habits and try to create good habits. And it's also common, Lord, by the end of the month for those resolutions to die. And Lord, I pray, Lord, especially for the spiritual resolutions, the, the desire, Lord, to read your word more regularly, the desire to read the entire Bible in a year, the desire to spend more time in prayer, the desire to spend more time with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, the resolution to skip church less, to be in the presence of you with the other brothers and sisters in worship on Sunday morning. All good resolutions. But Lord, I pray through your spirit that those resolutions will become new habits. Good habits, Lord. Lord, we pray that for everyone in this room. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We want to pray for those who are not with us. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to watch over them. Lord, I pray, Lord, as, as we see that COVID cases are higher now than they've ever been. Lord, it's, it can seem so dark and so gloomy. It can seem that there's no way out of this, that there is no light at the end of the tunnel. But Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would continue to give us perseverance and endurance during this time. And also, Lord, give us patience and love, especially for one another, especially for those who don't always agree with us and don't hold to the same views as we do. Help us to be compassionate on them as Christ was compassionate on those who hated him, Lord. Lord, we love you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So the uh, title of this sermon is Hello, Christopher Hitchens. Hello, Christopher Hitchens. If you don't know who Christopher Hitchens was, he, he passed away uh, not too long ago, um, but he was a, is an atheist who would debate with Christians on the existence of God and the validity of Christianity. He actually died of, of cancer. Uh, he was from Britain. Um, and he was quite popular in the new atheist movement. Um, if, if there was the Richard Dawkins was the, the more of the scientist aspect, the scientist aspect of the new atheism movement, Christopher Hitchens was kind of the popular cultural mainstream of that particular movement and group. And um, the way I want to start this before we kind of get into this is um, there's a, a book called the, the, the Effects of Grace, or The Grace Effect. I'm sorry, Grace Effect. And the book was written by Larry Alex Truton, uh, and um, he, he would debate with Hitchens quite often at universities, and, 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 and Larry was a believer. He was a Christian, and he was friends with Christopher Hitchens. And uh, the story goes that um, years and years before uh, Hitchens had passed away, that Larry, uh, who was the executive director of Fixed Point Foundation, and John Lennox, who was an Irish uh, mathematician who was a believer, were having a dinner together in Birmingham, Alabama, and they, they spent hours upon hours upon hours having debate on the existence of God and the validity of Christianity. And actually, they were in this diner till one in the morning, two in the morning, having this, this discussion, this argument. And they were awfully, all, all three were brilliant and geniuses and on their, own, on their own right, but they were having this friendly and very deep conversation about Christ and God. And, uh, 
And so they had this conversation, um, and uh, uh, John Lennox said, which of our two worldviews best address the problem of evil? And Hitchin goes, you think religion addresses the problem of evil? No, not religion, Christopher. Christianity, there is a difference. And John Lennox says, and Christianity begins with the premise that man is evil and that he needs to be saved from himself. Atheism, on the other hand, offers no compelling reason why I should not do precisely as I want to do. Hitchens, however, was different. He, didn't know, he needed no convincing of man's evil nature. An accomplished journalist, he had borne witness to human depravity all over the world. It had not left him unchanged, and if he is not the most credentialed of the new atheists, he possesses no doctorates and is not a member of any royal societies. He is, nonetheless, the most broadly educated and intellectually honest. Yet even as Hitchens conceded uh, the point of Linux on human nature, he remained no less skeptical, skeptical of the idea that Christianity was the magic bullet. So Hitchens starts talking about the Catholic Church and the history of some of the issues with the Catholic Church and talks about the Orthodox Church, especially in Eastern Europe and Russia and all the evils that they did. But Larry says in this three-way conversation, this debate in a diner in Birmingham, Alabama, what does the Bible say? Not does what the history says, not was what Christians, supposedly Christians or supposedly churches have done. What does the Bible say? Linux said, Christ forbid the very actions you're calling Christian. Christ was even more resolute in his opposition to hypocrisy and exploitation and the use of violence to promote his, his message than you are, Christopher. Perhaps you should be one of his followers. The two Christians discussing with Hitchens in this diner in Birmingham said the Bible as the sole arbitrary of what distinguished authentic Christianity from counterfeit versions of it. And this left Hitchens dumbfounded. He never conceded, never thought to think. Instead of looking at history, instead of looking at what people have done to look to the Bible as the arbitrary of what actually Christianity is. Larry Alex said, problem is not religion, it's man. Christianity, on the other hand, not only understands that the problem is man, but it seeks to redeem him from the evil that is inherent to his nature. It understands man's, man's need for meaning, for love, for hope, and it gives to society what it otherwise lacks. Christopher Hitchens says, well, I will certainly agree that Christianity once inspired great art, in literature, but it is a relic of Bronze Age mythology. Larry Alex said, I'm referring to what theologians call common grace. It's the idea that when there is a significant Christian presence in a given society, it brings tangible benefits not just to the Christian, but to society as, as a whole. Grace is the very thing atheists do not understand. Instead of a merciful, gracious God, they saw only the rule of St. Benedict on a cosmic level. Hitchens could not comprehend what does Christianity give us today? What does it give us? Sure, it gave us art, it gave us literature, but what does it give us today? He couldn't understand the concept of grace and grace effects in the world 
in lots of places around the world, and, and, and Larry Alex talks about this in his book because he, he adopted a, a girl from Ukraine named Sasha who had HIV, and they adopted her and brought her to the United States. And in and lots of parts of Eastern Europe, especially in Ukraine where the Chernobyl happened, the great nuclear power plant that exploded, there's a sense where humans are held at contempt, that people are just not cared for, people are not watched over. Anna, Anna Reed, who's a journalist, said, A saga of technical incompetence and irresponsibility, a bureaucratical sloth, uh, and plain contempt for human lives. This is how she describes the, the worldview of a lot of people in Eastern Europe and Russia. It's not a place to be old, sick, or needy. Since eight, 1986, 84,000 children from Eastern Europe have been adopted. And if you didn't know this, uh, um, Christina Melvin was adopted from Romania. 84,000, since 1986, 84,000 children have been adopted from Eastern Europe. Because children just aren't cared for in a lot of parts of the world. And I, the reason why I bring this up is because at the end of the sermon, when I kind of do a conclusion, I'm going to bring us back to this story. How, how this effect, the grace effect, affected Christopher Hitchens before he passed away, before he died. The context of this passage, and, and Pastor Denton brought this up quite well, is that, that, the, that Jesus brings up these parables in the context of some grumbling from the Pharisees and the scribes. They were grumbling because Jesus was receiving sinners and eating with them. And they, they, they grumbled at this idea. They believed that sinners should be judged. They think sinners should be taken to the mattress, not received and shown love and compassion and grace. They even, instead of having joy in heaven over the repentance of one sinner, the Pharisees and the scribes believed that joy in heaven's over one sinner who is obliterated before God. That was their viewpoint. Far more joy in heaven when a sinner is destroyed or blown up or judged than one sinner who is repentant. They did not find joy in the effects of God's grace on a sinner, and therefore they were ignorant of God's heart. So when they see Jesus, the Son of God, God incarnate, showing love to sinners, they do not understand this God. They are ignorant of this God. The God that they think that they know, they actually are ignorant of. They are ignorant of his values, they're ignorant of his mission, and they're ignorant of what brings him joy. They're ignorant. So they don't really know the God they say that they know, the God they think they serve. They don't actually know him. So the main idea is this, that God, like the woman with the coins, urgently uh, pursues what is valuable to him, and when found, leads to overwhelming joy in heaven. God, like the woman with the coins, urgently pursues what is valuable to him, and when found, leads to overwhelming joy in heaven. For you children, there's some key words here that you can discuss with your family or your parents over lunch or on your way home. What is valuable, orphan, and party. Valuable, orphan, and party. So if you're taking notes, this is kind of the, the, the big point here is, if one sinner is valuable to God, then one sinner should be valuable to his church. 
If one sinner is valuable to God, then one sinner should be valuable to his church. First sub-point is, is kind of a, a nest egg. God absolutely determines what is valuable. God absolutely determines what is valuable. Looking at the first part of verse 8. Or what woman? What's so interesting about this is that, if you kind of understand, if you read this well, what has Jesus, what has Jesus done through these two parables? He's basically said, if you go back to the beginning of chapter 15, he says in verse 3, so he told them this parable, what man of you having a hundred sheep? So he's comparing, he said, what if you were a shepherd? Pharisees and scribes, what if you were a shepherd? And shepherds were not liked in high society, right? They were dirty, they watched over animals, they're actually their witness in a court case wasn't heard, right? They were not the... We know we have the shepherds in the fields at night and the, the Christmas story. We think shepherds are kind of an elevated role in that society. That's the quite opposite, actually. They were not held to high esteem. So the Pharisees would never like to be compared to a, to a shepherd. But then Jesus adds one more layer. He compares them to women, which, again, women were not uh, held to high esteem, not like our culture and our society where women have a lot more rights and more privileges and freedoms. In that society, they had very little rights and privileges. So the Pharisees were already mad that Jesus compared them to shepherds, but then he adds another thing. and said, oh, by the way, what if you were a woman? Imagine yourself a woman, insignificant. Thankfully, God does not hold women to insignificancy, right? He created them equal with God. In Genesis chapter 1. And even in, in, in Psalms 23, which is great, God share, uh, the psalmist David compares God to a shepherd. And then he also compares them to women and says that when David says, You prepare a table before me, right? Before my enemies. What does women do? They prepare the table in that society. So God compares himself to a woman, but they would not have liked that, the, the Pharisees and the scribes. The problem with the Pharisees, and you have to understand the context of these, these two parables, their issue was that they lacked, lacked humility. That was their biggest problem. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. Who are the people Jesus opposed? The Pharisees. Why? Because they were proud and they were not humble. Jesus received sinners and eats with them. Tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to listen to him. Don't fall into the trap to think that Jesus did not preach difficult sermons to the tax collectors and sinners. He preached repentance of sin. He preached repentance of their ways. But what did the, Pharisees, the tax collectors and sinners do? Their hearts were humbled and they drew near to Christ to hear him teach. Jesus says in Luke 5, 30-32, that those who were sick are called sinners. He called sinners to repentance. Those who had humble hearts. There's a song by uh, the, the, the group called The Porter's Gate. We play it sometimes before service. They have a song called Zacchaeus Song. I want to read a little bit of that. It says, Jesus our Lord comes to seek and to save. The broken, the lost, and the sheep gone astray. Lay down your treasures, for they're just golden chains. He says, child, I will come to your house today. He doesn't come to the house of Zacchaeus if Zacchaeus is like, well, I'm a tax collector, and I take people's money, and I, this is a, my rightful claim to do so. 
the reason why Jesus interacts with Zacchaeus is because why? Because Zacchaeus has a humble heart and he wants to listen to Christ and he quickly re- realizes that he is a sinner and he secretly re- seeks faith in Christ. And what does he do? He seeks obedience and actually gives money back. The question is, do you have a humble heart to listen to Christ's words? The Pharisees and the scribes didn't have a humble heart. Do you have a humble heart to draw near to Christ's word and to listen? To hear your Savior say, salvation is today. Are you ready to lay down your golden chains and hear from the Lord? The Pharisees were not ready. The Pharisees grumbled when Christ spoke. For the tax collectors and sinners did they did what? They drew near and repented of their sins. So we hit the story that you know, Jesus compares the Pharisees and the scribes to a woman having 10 silver coins. Now, these silver coins would range in value, just like our coins will range in value in the market, in the global market. But a silver coin was uh, probably like a a denarius. It was probably about one day's labor. And she may have worn these 10 coins around her neck as an ornament, possibly. These 10 Pieces represented her life savings. They were her rainy day fund. They were her nest egg. John MacArthur says that a woman's dowry given to her as a wedding gift by her father would provide security for the future. Maybe this tin coins was provided by her father when she was married to keep for a rainy day for security if something happened to her husband, if he were to die. Money in case of a loss of income. If she loses one, it says that she loses one of these ten coins. It's one-tenth of her savings was lost. The one was valuable to the shepherd, right, in 99, and one was lost. And so what did he do? He left the 99 to go find the one because the one was still valuable. One of the hundred was valuable. The one of the ten coins was significantly valuable to to the woman. The Pharisees would understand this, and Jesus even says in Luke 16, 14, they're lovers of money. They would have understood, oh, one coin of 10? Oh, you got to find the coin. It's extremely valuable. They would have understand the significance of losing this coin. We understand from the first parable that the, the, the coin is to represent lost sinners and the value of a lost sinner. Why are sinners valuable? Why are people valuable? Because we're all image bearers of God. David, King David calls, calls humanity the crown of God's creation in Psalms chapter 8. Your value is not determined by profits earned or points made or likes or hearts received. Your value is how much someone is, your value is not depending on how much someone's willing to pay you. God absolutely determines your value. He values so much, you so much, he sent his son into the world. That is what Advent is. That is what Christmas is about. To take on human flesh, to be like you in every respect, and then lay his life down as a perfect uh, substitute for your sin, and then sent his spirit to change your heart. That's how much he values you. He offered his own son for your sins. That's how much God values sinners. Do you believe that God values you? Or do you believe that God values you based off what you do and um, what accomplishments you make and what job offers you get or what grades you get on your report card and 
Um, how many times do you read your Bible per month? That's how, that's how your value is determined by God. We know from Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, that we are all children of wrath, but God, who is rich in mercy, showed us grace. We sang that song, Adoption by Ghost Ship, in the beginning of the service. One of the, courses, one of the lines says, When I met you, I didn't know you had money. I didn't know you were a king. I was too young to know you were a rich man. I just knew you loved me. We need rescuing and help. The, the interesting thing about these coins is, is, how is a coin supposed to rescue itself? How is a sheep supposed to rescue itself? It's helpless. It needs rescuing. A, a coin, a lot of times money is disregarded. It's forgotten. It's left in the couch to be forgotten, to never be discovered. But God does not treat you that way. He does not consider you that invaluable. You are valuable to him. You are not long forgotten. You are not disregarded. little history. This was in the table talk uh, issue this, this month. He was talking about Algeria, the country in northern Africa. Since 2019, the government has launched a public assault against Protestant Christianity, basically closing several churches indefinitely. Less than 50 Protestant churches are publicly registered in Algeria. In 2012, in the 2012 law that was passed in Algeria, it required all churches to register again every year to maintain their approved status. Algeria is an Islamic nation. Many churches were denied registration. Churches continued to meet and worship, but yet raids were made and arrests were made. Pastors were thrown in prison, things like that. The number of professing Christians in Algeria today has grown from 10,000 to more than a half a million since the law was passed. 5,000% increase in the world's second most populous Arab country. 5,000% increase since the law was passed. God will not abandon the Algerian people. He will not abandon them. They're not disregarded. They're not long forgotten. His grace will be poured out on lost sinners. And the question is, is do we, his church, value what God values? Do we value what God values? Do we think sinners are like nest eggs? That they are like our savings, and if, we, if it was lost, we would be in ruin? Or do we just treat it as, ah, it's forgotten coins in the couch. Who cares? The second point is this, a redemptive emergency. God resolutely pursues spiritual orphans. A redemptive emergency. God resolutely pursues spiritual orphans. Continuing in verse 8, so the, the coin is lost. The woman loses one of her ten coins. And does not a, she light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? I use the word uh, uh, spiritual orphans. That's what sinners are. They're spiritual orphans. They have no father. They may have a physical father, but they don't have a spiritual father. They don't have God, their creator. There's a term in Russia for orphans, and the word translated means one without oversight. This was talked about in Russia when it comes to orphans. 
I declare without exaggeration that we have not children, homes, but children, cemeteries, and cesspools in the literal sense of the word. This is how orphans are treated in Eastern, Eastern Europe. This is how orphans are treated in Russia. They are long forgotten, forsaken, left to die, damned by the society and the government. This is the view of the Pharisees and the scribes, the sinners and tax collectors. They're forgotten. They're damned. Who cares about them? Who cares? Why should you care about them? They're sinners. They're tax collectors. Leave them to cemeteries and cesspools. Who cares? Yet God values the spiritual orphans. Why does he value them? It's interesting that we get in the beginning of these parables. What did they do? They drew near to listen to the words of God, the words of Christ. What did Jesus come? He came to seek and save the lost. And the woman, who represents God, represents Christ, the woman desperately seeks the lost coin. So what does she do? She lights a lamp. Most of the, the homes in that time, were, there was no windows or very few windows. They were very small, so even during the day, it would be quite dark in the, in the room. So if you're trying to find something that was lost, you have to light a lamp natural light inside the house. She would then sweep her house, right, trying to find it in the dust and the dirt, trying to find this lost coin that was probably covered up by dust and dirt, and she's trying to find the shimmering, uh, 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 shimmeringness of the, of the metal of the coin. And she searches, searches carefully and intensely for it, not violently, but with care and devotion. Not like when one of us can't find our keys or just like throwing stuff out of the room and just trying to violently try to find our keys as we try to get in the car because we're late to where we're trying to go. It's violently trying to search for something, right? She didn't violently try to search for it. She was careful. She was devoted. God is resolute in his pursuit of lost sinners. Like this woman who is resolute, she's not going to give up. She's not going to give up. It's one of her ten coins. It's one of her life savings. She's not going to go, oh, well, I tried for an hour. I should just go about my day. No, she's going to not stop until she finds it. God is also resolute in his pursuit of lost sinners. You think of New Year's resolutions. The problem with New Year's resolution is we're not resolute in our resolutions. We give up quite quickly. For you Bible readers, you're trying to read the Bible in one year, when do you usually give up? Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. What God, so the thing about God, though, God is resolute in what he is pursuing. William Godfrey says, what he has resolved to do, he has resolved eternally, and he cannot fail to follow through on what he has resolved. He won't fail. He won't stop. He won't quit. The problem with Israel during the time of the, after, the, after, the, the, after they were brought back to the land, after the exile in Malachi, they struggled to believe that God really loved them. That God really loved them. And God had to tell them, do you not know what I've done for you? Like, I've brought you back. I've restored you. I've shown you grace. And you're questioning if I love you? God pursues lost sinners and spiritual orphans with love and devotion and resolve. 
look at your own life. If you want convincing, look at your own life to figure out how much God loves you and how resolute he is to show his love and devotion to you. Look at your own life. Seriously, look at your own life. Reflect on God's pursuit of your heart. I'm going to call out Robert Hudson a little bit here because I say this all the time to Robert, and and it's kind of become like a joke. But I always will look at Robert and say, how many more times does God need to prove his devotion and love to you, Robert? How many more times does he need to do that to you? And some of us need to be told that by someone. How much more times does God need to show and prove he loves you and devoted to you? God's people should love what God loves. And the tendency to forget the redemptive emergency in the world is one of the problems with the church. We're like the Hamilton song uh, that George Washington sings. We just want to go sit under a, a vine, right? We want to sit under my own vine and rest. We're so, de- we're so ang- eager to just rest. The problem is, is that the early church didn't rest. They were like a garrison of, 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 of soldiers, right? Constantly uh, uh, worshiping and praying together and sharing with one another and getting around God's word together. Why? Because they were a part of a movement. And the gospel was going to the lost and it was going to the ends of the earth. We have a tendency to forget the redemptive emergency in the world. Few concerned for the kingdom of God and the majority concerned about the kingdom of this world. We need to be reoriented to the challenge that our major energies need to be towards building the kingdom of God and not our own kingdoms, not our own vines, not our own branches, so that we can sit in peace. If the church was more eager and they understood there's a redemptive emergency and we pursued lost people the way that this woman pursued the coin, we would so not be so concerned about our own kingdom, we'd be far more concerned about the kingdom of God. And think about if our energies were given to that, how much more money was given to missions, how much more missionaries were sent. I think sometimes we need to have the same thought that David had, that I have a house of cedar, I sit in a house of cedar, but the God, the ark of God dwells in a tent. I think if we thought that way, we'd be quick to value what God values and pursue what God pursues. That we would build a temple of the living stones to proclaim the excellency of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous lights. The last point is this, victory cigars. God triumphantly calls a party to celebrate the effects of his grace. Victory cigars. God triumphantly calls a party to celebrate the effects of his grace. Verse 9, the woman finds the coin, right? Her pursuit has been uh, she's been re- resolute in her pursuit. She finds the coin. We have, no, we, don't, we have no idea how long she searched, but we know that she finds the coin, the lost coin. You, you, don't, don't be uh, those Bible readers who kind of read that and don't think about yourself in that same situation. Put yourself in the same shoes of her. How would you react if you had found something so precious to you? You'd be screaming, Right? You'd be like, awesome, I found the coin. I've been looking for this coin. Thank goodness your heart would stop. Uh, there's a, a, once I lost my Apple iPod, like AirPod things, those things that are way too expensive that people spend their money on, those things. Um, 
And if you have them, you know what I'm talking about. Um, they're no different than any other headphones that are like 10 bucks. Um, but anyways, uh, you got to be an Apple person, right? You got to buy it. Um, but I had left those in uh, Denton's car. I had no idea what I left them. I was looking all over my house for them. I was looking all over my car for them. I couldn't find them anywhere. And then one day, I don't know, weeks later, he kind of puts them like on the desk and said, look, I found it in my car. And I think, I, I don't remember, but I know, I know that I was overjoyed. I was happy that I had found something that I had couldn't find. I couldn't, didn't remember, remember where, they, where I had left them. And for us Southern people, we think, thank you, Jesus, for finding something. Right? The Southern thing, we say that a lot. Thank you, Jesus, that I found this. And so this woman's like, thank you, I found this. This is awesome. And she calls together her friends and her neighbors. Her, her, in those times, you would live in the same village that you grew up in. And you had friends, you had neighbors that you spent a lot of time with. And she goes, come over to my house and celebrate with me. I found my lost coin, one of my parts of my nest egg, my savings. And the, the recovery is met with celebration. A party is needed. For us, for us, when we say there's cake, our kids say, oh, there must be a party. Let's just assume they had cake. Let's assume they had champagne. Let's assume that they celebrated and partied because the lost coin was found. And others are invited to share in the joy of the recovery of this lost coin. She says, rejoice with me because I have found the coin that was lost. When you understand the value of the coin, when you understand the, the pursuit of the coin, you understand the purpose and the appropriateness of a party and a celebration of this recovery. We can think of uh, the end of World War II that we can see pictures of the great celebration after the end of the war. The only time I can remember is when Osama bin Laden was killed, the celebration uh, around the country because the, the chief architect of 9-11 was found and assassinated. I don't remember the last time I really celebrated like really celebrate with other people. Maybe when I had my children were born, most likely with family and a few friends. But do you remember the last time you celebrated, like really celebrated and partied over something that happened, that you were joyful with other people? And the reason why I bring that up is because, uh, I'll get to that a little bit later, but um, so here in verse 10, it says that Jesus says to the Pharisees and scribes, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who has repents. I tell you, I mean, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the scribes, I tell you that God's joy is when a sinner repents. The joy that fills heaven. And those who share in that joy, share in a joy that when a sinner repents of his sin, Jesus sought to, to find sinners. And we think about this is that if we use it in comparison to this coin, looking at every alleyway, every dark corner, every hidden place for lost sinners. A coin can do nothing on their own. A sinner can do nothing on their own. They cannot be rescued by themselves. They have to be pursued by God, and God pursues sinners through his church. Shining the light of the glorious gospel in the darkest corners of the world. And restoring them to his heavenly treasury. And a party erupts. One of my things I wanted to get to here is, I don't know if the church celebrates enough 
Sure, we celebrate graduations and weddings. In our, in our lives, maybe we, if you're a big sports fan, you celebrate your sports team winning. But do we celebrate that much in the church? Really? Do you remember the last time you partied or celebrated with your church family? Is there anything that we ever celebrated or partied over? Do we just come to church on Sunday and do Bible studies and that's pretty much what we do? There's not a lot of things that we celebrate, is there? That we get excited about. Maybe because our priorities are wrong. If we were prioritizing evangelism and discipleship like God pursues and finds joy in, that we would have moments of celebration. Maybe that's what we need to pray for. Maybe that's our 2021 resolution. We want to party more. We want to celebrate more. And how are we to celebrate? Is when we are pursuing lost sinners who then repent of their sin and we get to celebrate and share the same joy that is filled in heaven. Maybe that's something we need to pray for more. The church needs to celebrate more and party more. This needs to be a year of celebration because God is working. Let me tell you something that's going on. There, um, I was told uh, recently that uh, this year, in 2020, that there, were six, there are 600 new Nepali Christians this year that our church helped to support. That's something we're celebrating, isn't it? Partying, maybe. Getting a cake. One of the, res- one of the things that I, heard, uh, I was told is that they are seeking that God would reach 60,000 Nepalis this year, that they would plant four dozen new churches. I hope we get to celebrate that together. When a lost soul is found by their Savior and Creator, we should celebrate. We should party. I want to come to the end of that, the story of Christopher Higgins, Hitchens, I'm sorry. Two years after um, how it began, began this, this, this diner conversation that lasted till one or two in the morning in Birmingham, Alabama, they ended up, Larry, uh, Alex, and Christopher Hitchens had another debate in Montana. And Christopher Hitchens was struggling with cancer, and he had lost his hair and lost a lot of weight on the verge of death. And Larry, Alex, and Christopher were talking about the book of John, and they were going to talk about it together on their journey, on their trip down to Birmingham. Then a few years after that, they had this debate together in Billings, Montana. It was called Christopher Hitchens versus Larry Townsend. And one of the questions that was asked to Larry was, are all religions the same? And he said, well, one thing about Christianity that's different than all the religions is grace. Salvation through a person who is accessed by the grace he so freely offers. Without grace, we are all without hope, he said to the audience. We're all plagued by sinful, fallen nature. And what can save us from our helpless state but grace that is in Christ? He says this to this audience. Well, after the debate, they had dinner. Larry's family and Christopher Hitchens. And his adopted daughter, Sasha, from Ukraine, who had HIV, came up to Christopher Hitchens and said, Hello, Christopher Hitchens. And Christopher said to Larry, She's not what I had expected. He thought because of her HIV positive condition that she would be just as weak and sickly as he was. But yet she was lively and beautiful. It was Hitchens' observation of her. He said at dinner, Christopher watched her from nearby table, and as Sasha laughed and talked to her brothers, her vicious personality and overflowing 
Hitch looked amused, even touched. Sasha neither knew that she was being observed nor that she was a participant in a silent and undeclared debate. The contrast between these contestants were striking. Here he was, a 60-something Anoxian, a best-selling author, and a celebrated public intellectual, while opposite him sat a poorly educated 12-year-old girl who was still learning the basics of the English language. And even so, he was no match for her. Sasha had been transformed by grace. Hitchens was no match in a debate against the transforming power of the gospel demonstrated in Sasha's life. He was no match to that. All his arguments, all his intellect, all the things that he argued and read was nothing compared to the gospel's transforming power in this girl's life. We should value that demonstration. We should value it because God values it. We should pursue it because God pursues it. And we should celebrate it because God celebrates it. When a sinner receives the transforming grace of Christ, there is a party in heaven. We should have the same celebrations as we gather together as believers. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We praise you, Lord, for your, uh, the testimony of your word. This three verses of parable on a woman who lost the coin is so uh, convicting on us, Lord. It, it tells us what we should value. It tells us what we should pursue. And it should tell us what we should celebrate. And Lord, I pray that you would change us, that you would... Make us people, Lord, who value what you value, who pursue what you pursue, and who party and celebrate what you party and celebrate for. But I pray that this year, this year 2021, that we would have many things to celebrate, that we would have many things to party, that we would come together and celebrate because you have redeemed a lost soul, that you have adopted a spiritual orphan, And we will celebrate that, Lord. I pray for the children in this church who do not know Christ, that we would celebrate their salvation and celebrate their baptism and celebrate their sanctification, Lord. We pray that you would do that here. I know the fathers and mothers in this room, and they pray for their children. And I pray that we would pray for them as well. And I pray that you would save them. And I pray for the students that go to USI down the street, the lost souls there, orphans, Lord, that you would save them and adopt them into your family, and that we would celebrate that. Lord, I pray for the families around this church and this neighborhood and this city who do not know you, Lord, and I pray that we would celebrate when they come to know you and believe in you. I pray for our friends in Nepal and the, of the people that you're going to save there and the churches that you're going to plant, that we would celebrate what you're doing there as well and what, what Sarah's doing in Brazil and what else you send us to do or be a part of, Lord, that what, what, what Robert's doing in the downtown area with proper hip-hop, when we see people redeemed by Christ and adopted into your family, we would celebrate that. But I pray that there'd be a lot of cake eaten in this church this year. We praise you. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for your church. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take up the Lord's Supper together. Uh, The way that we do this is is for believers only, for those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have been baptized into the faith. Um, If you have never been baptized, please come talk to us. If you've never received Christ, if you've never put your faith in Him, come please talk to us. Uh, It's also for those who have 